Hello, everyone, and welcome to this latest episode of the podcast. My name is Richard Bryant, and I am your host. It's May 22nd, 2020. This is the Corona Chronicles, Day 71. Hello, everyone. Today was a difficult day in theater news. Why, you ask? Well, in generally, most of the news tends to focus around funding or what's streaming or what people are doing to try and lift others up. However, today was particularly tough for not only artists in the U.S., but also in the U.K. Our top story comes from The Guardian. This was written by Brian Logan. He writes, What even is theater now? The fringe artists left out in the cold. Festivals canceled, venues shut, and funding shelved. COVID-19 has forced those working in theater to rethink their art form. It's like the seven stages of grief, says Paula Varjak, of the way COVID-19 has affected the world of theater. As a freelance theater maker, Varjak will no longer be launching two new shows this summer at the Edinburgh Fringe, the fruit of years of careful strategy, while all her other engagements are indefinitely on ice. But after the denial, anger, bargaining, etc., Varjak thought she might at least end up at some sort of acceptance. Maybe she could even come to see the closure of theaters as an opportunity to reimagine the art from wholesale. There's been some of this, says Varjak, but she's also realized that grieving for your livelihood, for your whole vanishing industry, isn't simply a process. It's a cycle, she says. I'm struggling to get past the shock of stage myself, and I'm not, or at least no longer, a freelance artist. Although as artistic director of Camden People's Theater, I work closely with many of them. The point of CPT is to support emergent theater makers, particularly those making innovative or socially engaged work, so that they can get a foothold in the industry. We're only as good as artists we work with, and those artists are, in the era of COVID-19, in serious trouble. Those we're closest to, artists from marginalized backgrounds and at the fragile start of their careers, are more vulnerable than most as their work dries up. This support hasn't been made available. There's the government's self-employment income support scheme and the Arts Council's emergency fund for creative practitioners. But the Arts Councils can't cater for everyone. Some terrific artists have have been refused funding. And many more aren't eligible for the government's offer. Those whose income derives jointly from pay and freelance work can find themselves excluded. So too artists whose income is too small. Those who freelance for less than a year and foreign nationals whose visa status disqualifies them. Together, those categories cover a lot of theater makers. 70% of the industry's workforce is self-employed. Many are now left with no earning power and no institutional support. In its place, there is at least solidarity. I've been speaking to freelancers about their plight, and everyone comments on the spirit of mutuality that's come to the fore. At CPT, We financially compensated all the artists whose shows were canceled when we shut down, possibly mainly because audience members donated the cost of their tickets and several fellow artists paid forward their cancellation fees. Elsewhere, superstar live artist Byrony Kimmings initiated her gig aid support scheme, raising 40,000 pounds for artists who'd lost work due to COVID-19, while theater maker Scotty Offord paid mentoring sessions for producers and artists and micro-commissions to create digital work for home viewing. Online roundtables and peer support networks have proliferated. I spoke to the artist Haley McGee, whose 14-day creative quarantine challenge is an online program for artists seeking to stay creative during lockdown. 
It's been so successful, more than 1,100 people have signed up, that McGee has had to automate the service. Manchester's Contact Theatre had a similar initiative. A week's notice aimed at safeguarding the mental health of the isolated and giving artists work. People want to be doing something, says McGee, not just watching more live streams. We're already all watching too much TV. I hosted a Zoom meeting from CPT the other week to reunite six artists we'd been supporting to develop new shows before the lockdown struck. Mid-conversation, one of the participants announced, This is the first time I've felt like an artist in four weeks. It's not just artists' jobs that have evaporated, it's their identities, which, without work, can start to feel very brittle. To have no income is bad. To have no role or purpose in the so-called new normal is worse. Which partly explains the current boom of theater online. Here, the National Theater streams its greatest hits. There, the Gateshead International Festival takes place to great acclaim on Zoom. An indie collective Forest Fringe launches Forest Fringe TV. It's a tribute to the sector's indomitability. If we can't find an audience in our auditoriums, we'll hunt them down in their homes instead. It's an exciting creative challenge in itself. Paula Varjak's live work has a digital element. Now she's exploring how to make digital work with the spirit of liveness. I'm seeing it as just another form to play with, she says. It feels like there's a lot of genuine experimentation happening right now, which people are receiving in an open and forgiving way. But there's a flip side. Some see the rush to digital as a panic and that the urge to show how easily theater can be reproduced online downplays what makes it unique. Some feel under pressure to deliver hashtag content while lacking the skills to do so. I haven't been excited at watching a single film show, says the theater maker and playwright Annie Siddons. I'm not a film director, she says. The skill sets are different, and those who don't have video material good to go are panicking because they're not being swept up in the new wave of digital content splurging. They're just feeling even more left behind. Then there's the concern that digital and the effects of the lockdown more widely privilege the well-sourced and entrench in leadism. To make and distribute digital theater successfully, it helps to have resources, staff, an archive of recorded performance, and an established audience. And then, how on earth do you monetize it? David Lumger runs the sector support organization Common, which represents working-class theater makers. He's concerned that recent progress towards diversity will be reversed by the lockdown, saying a recent commission that offered £150 for new digital work, barely enough to cover the artist's times, he says, far less the upscaling required. The website that What's On Stage also drew heavy criticism when its lockdown playwriting prize offered only $500 for new hour-long play scripts. It has since canceled the prize. But then, freelance artists have always been taken for granted. If there's a positive right now, it's that the exploitation and insecurity has become impossible to ignore. Research at the online magazine Exunt into the plight of freelancers ineligible for government support found that 40% are considering a career change, one in three are experiencing housing insecurity, and over half are struggling with depression and anxiety because of their financial situation. It is alarming, and yet different only by degrees, perhaps, for many artists pre-lockdown experience of freelance theater practice. Dominic Garfield co-runs the grime and hip-hop theater company High Rise, who work extensively with young people and were developing their UK Drill project on the relationship between drill music and criminality before life got locked down. He told me that current conditions aren't such a change for High Rise, who are all too familiar with job insecurity and living hand-to-mouth. They're also, like most independent theater makers I know, light on their feet and resourceful, which can be useful skills in a crisis. Garfield's experience of lockdown so far has been perfunctory treatment from several venues with whom High Rise had bookings. 
and small acts of generosity from others. With emergency funding from the Arts Council secured, they can at least sustain, albeit digitally, their new gens project with young people. Garfield also hopes to put the company's recent show, Little Miss Lady, online, but won't consider charging for it, and won't do so until he's worked out how to generate online the crackling sense of event that attended its live performances. Can that be done? What does liveness even mean in the era of coronavirus when our closest relationships are mediated by screens and a crowded room could be a death sentence? Everyone in theater knows that, even after the lockdown is lifted, there's no quick return to normal for an art form that draws its lifeblood from social gathering. I don't know what theater is now, says Garfield, but I know that it's dumb to think about it. It's time for something new. Maybe that something new can be a revolution in how the industry treats its freelancers. There's been much discussion of a blog posted by ex-Battersea Arts Center director David Jubb, proposing a new funding model that delivers money not to buildings and organizations, but straight to artists. Might the worst of times also be the best of times? Some see an incredibly exciting opportunity to reimagine what theater is and how it's made. Others, justifiably, can't see past this month's rent payment and simply long to be back in the theater, doing what they do. What I really want, says Varjak, is to be able to perform the shows I've developed in a live space as soon as possible, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. On a side note, if you do wish to check out the Exunt Magazine article, the article is titled Theaters Left Behind Freelancers. Alice Seville surveys the freelance theater workers who aren't covered by government support and have been left without income overnight. This is an insightful and well-documented piece of work by Miss Seville. I highly recommend it and I hope you check it out to get more information and educate yourself about the realities of what's happening to our freelancers. Page two. From rescripted.org. A mass resignation, a letter from the Victory Gardens Playwrights Ensemble. For those of you who may not know, Victory Gardens is a theater located in the city of Chicago. On Friday, May 22, 2020, the Playwrights Ensemble of Victory Gardens resigned en masse via a public letter on Medium. Here is the full letter. Victory Gardens Theater Playwrights Ensemble. Luis Alfaro, Marcus Gardley, Ike Holter, Samuel D. Hunter, Naomi Lizuka, Tanya Saracho, Laura Shellhart. We... As an ensemble of resident artists at this venerable institution are deeply disturbed by the notion that our creative homes aspires to be a truth-telling temple on its stage, but not in its administration. This is unacceptable. The board of directors, who are of service to our community, took it upon themselves to eliminate communication with the ensemble, artistic staff, stakeholders, and artists who have labored for a decade to build up this theater and its new audience. For over five months and after receiving a letter signed by over 60 of its biggest supporters asking for accountability, the board sat on a plan to reorganize the institution. It ignored the limitless possibility of what the field might have, presented in terms of viable local and national leadership. This is a theater where the voice of the writer and creator is valued, but for months we were told that our voices were irrelevant and waited for days and days to hear from anyone in the institution after the news was announced. After being told we would be in conversation about any developments, we ended up hearing about the change in leadership along with everybody else. We're hereby resigning as a unified collective. How can we do our best work when the basic tenets of trust and leadership are not guaranteed? We are calling on artists, audiences, and donors to examine closely what happens when an institution like Victory Gardens Theater 
purposely ignores the mission it made for itself and abuses the very resources it claims to value and support. The ensemble hopes this act inspires the organization leaders to reconsider their treatment of this community so that future ensemble members will feel proud to call the biograph their home. As we step down, all of us are proud of being part of this theater's rich history, and we demand that a search for new leadership be made public so that all qualified leadership is encouraged and invited to apply. Thank you. The former ensemble playwrights of Victory Gardens. We'll keep you posted on any new developments from this story. But for someone who was a Chicagoan and lived and worked in the city of Chicago's theater scene for better part of a decade, it's kind of strange to know that for a community that likes to tout how strong its storefront and regional theaters are, it's kind of strange that these kinds of things are still happening. That whether it be freelance technicians, designers, or ensembles of actors or writers or producers are finding themselves in situations of conflict. Theater is about working together. Theater is about finding ways to bridge the gap. My feeling is that more of this is going to start coming to light as people start trying to find ways to either survive or find ways to, to cut corners and change a situation that was on the verge of change anyway, but are using this epidemic, this pandemic, as the motivating factor to start making these plans that were probably at one time considered not, not at the forefront, now viable. Again, I'm a big proponent of working together and saving all as more as many of these theaters, uh, these institutions as we can. But I also am realistic that some of these places are unfortunately due to situations more than likely outside of their control are just not going to survive. It would be a shame to lose a place like the Victory Gardens. It would be a shame to lose a, a place that has worked so hard to establish itself and reestablish itself in that part of the city of Chicago. So I implore you, I, I ask of you, continue to try and work together. If some things are untenable, then so be it. That's the way it is. But we shouldn't be fighting with each other. Okay, conflict is going to happen. I get it. But there comes a point in time where it's like, look, either we work this out or we don't. Divorces are ugly. I, 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 I understand. So we're just going to have to see how this all plays out. I feel for the I feel for the ensemble of writers. I really do. I also understand that a business is still a business, and it's called show business, not show fun. There's no good way for either side. Somebody's always going to get hurt. We just have to wait and see and see what comes of it. What new thing comes or rises, and maybe sometimes nothing comes from it. We're just going to have to wait and see. That's my two cents. So we'll keep an eye on this story, and hopefully something positive will come from it. Page three. From our friends at USITT. Yesterday, Oystad Education had an online meeting, hopefully to bring together theater students who are coping with COVID-19. It was also an opportunity for USITT students as well. 
I got to be part of this conversation. But unfortunately, like most things, attendance has been a little low. While it was great to be able to have a conversation among colleagues, it still would have been beneficial to be able to have students share their voices, let their voices be heard, and help guide us and many of our, our contemporaries into finding a way through this, this challenge. Topics we would like to have discussed were what aspects of online learning were successful and what just didn't work. What barriers to success did we experience with online learning? What topics would you, students, or other educators like to help study online? And what topics do we want to wait until they can be taught in person? With the wide-ranging places that many of the participants came from, we could agree on one thing, is that it's definitely going to be different. Whether it be a dance class, a stage management class, a lighting class, or even a, a painting and, and scenic uh, arts class. How do we figure out, how do we manage all these different aspects? Sure, some things lend themselves to, to, to technology and Zoom meetings or, or Skype meetings or some form of, of online interaction. But the tactile situations, whether it be learning the, the, the touch of how to lay layers of techniques of, of pigment on a, on, a, on a piece of scenery or dressing a, uh, a costume or dealing with a wig or any of these other really much more delicate um, skill sets. It would have been really nice, and it's and it's important to be able to hear what our colleagues have to say, but also what our students have to say. So I encourage students, please, please make every effort. I know it may seem difficult. I may you may not want to talk about it, but sometimes talking about it makes the problem seem a little less like a problem. Now, of course, this isn't therapy, and we all don't want these to turn into pity parties or necessarily you did this or we didn't do that or some sort of confrontation. It's about conversation. We need conversation. And yes, I don't like necessarily having Zoom meetings over and over and over again. It's been awful. It's it's Zoom burnout. It's, it's, it's happening. And, in, and in, also with that is anxieties and the the doubts and the the things that we as both artists and educators we go through you know we it's some of us we chose to do this others this was their calling but we can all agree that this is something that not only uh uh feeds feeds us in you know in a monetary sense but it also feeds our soul. It feeds our creativity. It feeds us as people, as who we are. So please, I implore you, please reach out to these education commissions. Please reach out. If you are part of a, a, a school uh, a school board, uh, a student school board, students, you've got to really fight for all these things that, you, that are important. Um, we can't do it alone. We can't do it by ourselves as educators. It's just not possible. We can't do all the heavy lifting. We need your support. So please reach out to the Education Commission of either your, your local organization, your schools, USITT, OISTAT, CITT, SBTD, MOUSE, <laughs> of, of Alphabet Soup, of all these different things. I, I 
I know we can all find a way through this. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be difficult, but we can do it. For my fellow educators, Miss um, Ann Medlock-Eli posted uh, on the Education Commission for USITT. She said, if you, couldn't, if you weren't able to make the, the commission meeting the other day, she has posted the PowerPoint presentation. She, she says that we had some great discussions in the chat about sessions for 2021, and she's encouraging you to propose a session. You can propose a session by either visiting USITT's various social media platforms, or you can go to USITT's website at usitt.org. Continue to be involved, and we can continue to move forward. Also, but let's put let's put some positivity on this before we call it a before we call it a day. Because I know we've had a difficult week, and you know you're probably not ready for more news or more TV or just more of just the same noise and rhetoric that's been going on. So let's end with something really positive. USITT to wrap up their week in their series of posts from designers whose productions were canceled or postponed due to the global COVID-19 pandemic are featuring the designs of Ms. Heather Jackson. Heather was the costume designer for the Everyman Theater's production of Cry It Out by Molly Smith Meltzer prior to being suspended. The classes, not her. Here's how Heather described her designs. The design of the production is contemporary, but very specific, showcasing three new mothers and one father from vastly different social economic levels, but living in the same overlapping neighborhood in Long Island. We had to capture the rawness of new motherhood and the detail of how each of these women presents themselves, both at home and to each other. It was pretty personal to me, having spent the months leading up to production on alternity leave, helping to take care of my newly arrived godson. To check out Heather Jackson's wonderful work, please visit USITT's Facebook page and many of their other social media platforms. Before I conclude today's podcast, I once again want to extend my gratitude to the members of our armed services, to our healthcare workers, our nurses and doctors, to our first responders, the police, fire, and emergency service officers around the world. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Please join me in continuing to support these women and men as they face this near impossible task of saving lives in the face of such great adversity. Please support your local food banks and shelters. If possible, donate blood at one of your local Red Crosses. Be sure to check in on the elderly and support those who have special needs. Reach out to a friend and help not only make their day, but also improve your own. Please support your small and local businesses as well. Be sure to continue to practice good hygiene, the wearing of personal protective equipment, and social distancing. I'd like to conclude with this quote from the greatest, that being Muhammad Ali. He said, impossible is just a big word thrown around by small men who find it easier to live in the world they've been given than to explore the power they have to change it. Impossible is not a fact. It's an opinion. Impossible is not a declaration. It's a dare. Impossible is potential. Impossible is temporary. Impossible is nothing. My name is Richard Bryant, and I have been your host. 
It's May 22nd, 2020. This has been the Corona Chronicles, Day 71. Take care, good night, and be well.